0: Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Dr. Michael Beckley, who is an associate professor of political science at Tufts and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He is the author of Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Superpower. We'll be discussing why all the talk of the decline of U.S. empire is wrong and why it will retain supremacy. Now, I'm very glad to have you on, Dr. Beckley, because... I must be honest, for many years, I have been a Declinist when it comes to American empire, largely because of the historical uh, cycle, the historical imperial cycle, but I'm sort of beginning to question the Declinist perspective and wonder whether the US empire will indeed carry over strongly far into the 21st century. You cite the famous Yale historian, Paul Kennedy, who describes the US as quite simply the greatest superpower ever, that nothing has ever existed like this disparity of power, nothing, and I would definitely agree Could you tell us what led you to pursue uh, your research in this direction?
1: Yeah, actually, like you, I, too, was a declinist before. That's actually how I got interested in the topic. Um, So I started researching this area when I was a graduate student, um, and that happened to be right at the height of the global financial crisis um, in 2008. And I was going to school in New York, so I was literally in the epicenter of the crisis with banks collapsing and markets tanking. And so I I did what any rational person would do in that situation. And I moved to China because, uh, you know, the economy there was booming, seemed to just be powering through the crisis. And I thought, you know, I'll go there. I'm going to write my dissertation about the epic rise of China. And really, it was going to be a project on sort of decline management for the United States. How can the United States hand off power to a rising power um, without triggering some kind of catastrophic conflict? So I initially thought, you know, that I would write on US decline, but the longer I lived in China, the more I became aware of a lot of different flaws in the Chinese system, as well as some enduring um, Chinese uh, American strengths. Um, you know, for, for one thing, I ended up living in China for about two and a half years. And, um, you know, as soon as I would go outside of the cities and you go out into the countryside, you just see the, the abject poverty that a big chunk of China's population still lives in. Um, I realized what it was to live in a country without secure property rights, where multiple times I was in a restaurant or a bar or something that got raided by the police and shut down and then eventually bulldozed. Um, I, I had some experiences with the Chinese healthcare system where you have to pay out of pocket for every single service um, because the safety net is is so under um, underfunded. So there's just a number of experiences that I had there. And I started digging more into the data on China's wealth, on its... Um, its education system, its healthcare system, its military. And I found that the a lot of the numbers painted a far less rosy picture of the rise of China than what I was reading, especially in the Western media. And I did the same kind of due diligence for the United States and all the other great powers. And the ultimate conclusion I came to is that while, yes, the United States has a lot of problems, they aren't the kind of catastrophic problems that I think China really faces going forward, and even the other major powers like Russia, for example, or India also have enormous hurdles that they're going to have to clear, and that the United States, for all of its problems, actually probably has the best prospects to continue to amass wealth and power in the decades ahead.
0: You know, I was only in China for two and a half weeks, not two and a half uh, years uh, as yourself, but I'm starting to get the, the same picture that, that, that you just described Um about the situation in china and, and not just in china but you know I, i'm here in kazakhstan now and i've lived in mongolia and just the the, the surrounding countries uh and and they they have s- sort of this similar situation and i feel i was more optimistic or hopeful in the near term but i feel that yes it's going to take uh a much longer time for countries like this to to, to uh, develop and i think there's been lately more more hype uh, about this sort of thing and, and development and um, you know you use the measure you say the measuring stick for uh, this power is all wrong and that instead of uh, measuring power in gross terms we should be looking in net terms or something you call net power uh, so can you tell us a bit about how you measure the great powers, uh, this net power—how net stocks of wealth and military assets are the key pillars of power—and you know more about why everyone has predicting the fall of the U.S. empire has been getting it all wrong.
1: Yeah, so I, I actually I think that one of the reasons we overestimate China's rise is because a lot of the indicators that we use to kind of size up countries um, are, as you say, they're these gross indicators—things like gross domestic product, military spending trade and financial flows, um, you know, number of ships. And the problem with all of those measures is that they tally countries' resources without deducting the costs that every country has to pay to police its people, protect its people, provide services. And so as a result, these kind of indicators, they systematically exaggerate the power resources of poor countries with big populations, so China or India. These countries look very powerful because they generate a lot of economic activity. They have really big militaries, but they also bear massive welfare and security burdens that drain a lot of their resources. So what I argue in the book is that we need to account for these costs. And to do that, you have to analyze the balance of power in net terms rather than gross terms. And that basically involves creating a sort of mental balance sheet for every country where you put all of their advantages and assets on one side, but you also consider their liabilities and their flaws and the cost they have to pay. So I develop a a framework for assessing the rise and fall of the great powers. In earlier chapters in the book, I show it does a much better than standard approaches at sort of tracking the rise and fall of great powers over the past five centuries or so. Um, It does a much better job predicting the outcome of international disputes and wars. And so then after that historical discussion, I apply that framework to the current balance of power and show that it really, it dramatically alters our view of key aspects of China's rise. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, So one is, you know, everyone knows that China, by some measures, has the world's largest economy. It has this huge GDP. What is often neglected is that China also leads the world in things like debt or capital flight or loss-making companies, useless infrastructure. Um, Chinese businesses use twice the capital and five times the labor to produce the same level of output as the average American firm. And the Chinese government has to spend hundreds of billions of dollars more than the United States every year to feed its people, police its people, provide social services to its massive population. And I found that when you subtract out all of those costs, the United States actually has roughly three to four times the total wealth of China and the absolute gap between the two countries is actually growing by trillions of dollars a year. Um, another example is in the realm of innovation. So you know everyone's talking about China being this technological superpower, and it's definitely true that China has dramatically increased its inputs into innovation. Things like R and D spending, um, it's employing lots more scientists and engineers. The problem is a lot of these inputs end up getting wasted. So roughly half of China's R&D spending is basically just stolen by corrupt officials and never makes it to a lab. Um, China loses roughly 10,000 of its best scientists every year. A lot of them end up going to the American workforce. So as a result, you know, China lags behind in terms of innovation outputs, you know, things like value added in high tech industries, uh, royalties, you know, who's paying whom for access to technology. And a lot of Chinese companies have trouble competing beyond China's protected market, um, or without a lot of subsidies. Um, I'll give you one last example. Uh, You know, in the military realm, um, you know, China's military budget has been rising. It's bought all these platforms, um, all these new weapon systems. But I find that Roughly, The Chinese platforms are roughly half as capable as their American counterparts in terms of things like range or endurance or payload, and roughly 35% of China's military budget and literally half of its military force, so half of the active duty force, is actually focused on internal security and border defense, so it's bogged down at home rather than being able to project power abroad. So these are the kind of sort of due diligence exercises I go through um, in the book, and they reveal that China still lags very far behind the United States.
0: Yeah, and you used uh, some other historical examples. Uh, you went back comparing uh, China to the to the British Empire in the 19th and 20th centuries and saying how on paper, you know, China seemed like a superpower, yet clearly the British, you know, were, were more powerful and took over subjugated China. And then again, you compared China to Japan and It appeared again that China on paper was more powerful than than it really was, but then again, uh, easily subjugated by uh, Japan. And uh, to just get your comment on the Belt and Road, you know, so so you also mentioned how Chinese officials uh, inflate their numbers and that the mega infrastructure projects, they look impressive, but roughly 60% of them cost more to build than they will ever generate in economic returns. So is essentially, are you saying China is a paper tiger? And what, what are your thoughts on the potential of the Belt and Road?
1: No, I I don't think China is a paper tiger um, because it still is extremely, you know, I think it's the second most powerful country in the world. And there's a lot of areas where it has tremendous influence, but it's more trying to push back against this idea that it's this gigantic superpower that's destined to overtake the United States. Um, And I think Belt and Road helps illustrate both sides of of that coin, because on the one hand, China has been able to gain a lot of international recognition and a lot of influence by handing out lots of loans to many countries and investing in a lot of countries. Now those countries are more likely to curry favor with China. They're more likely to vote with China in the United Nations. They're more likely to um, abide by what China wants in terms of say human rights um, internationally. Um, On the other hand, China has severely exposed itself, I think from an economic perspective through Belt and Road because it's sunk hundreds of billions of dollars in Chinese money into many countries, You know, more than half the countries in Belt and Road are below investment grade. Um, they, they have extremely low ratings. They're a very, it basically means they're unlikely to be able to repay the massive loans that they've taken from China. And so the problem for China is that say 10 years from now, when those loans come due and those countries can't pay them back, china is either going to have to write off those loans and lose hundreds of billions of dollars of chinese taxpayer money or it's going to have to do what it did in sri lanka and basically start taking over assets in partner countries but that's not a really a great way to win friends and win hearts and minds internationally so you know on the one hand right now china looks great because it's handing out lots of money everybody loves it um but i think In the long term, because of the lack of economic viability of a lot of the projects that are being built, it's going to put China in a tough diplomatic position as well as a tough financial position.
0: And I wanted to take a look at the military aspect. You spend a good deal of uh, your book really going into the technical detail uh, examining uh, the military aspects between USA and China and, and China I- in the Asia-Pacific uh, region. And you know, so you wrote that Ch- if China lags behind the U.S. economically, uh, but it can still challenge Pax Americana militarily, just as the Soviet Union did during the Cold War. And as, as, you, as you've said that uh, U.S. military power ranks five to ten times uh, greater than Chinese uh, net military power. Uh, some of the things you mentioned, such as American military training methods are widely considered the best in the world. Meanwhile, Chinese troops, for example, spend 30% of their time studying communist uh, ideology and attending political uh, meetings. So if you could talk a little bit about the, the military aspect, but also kind of, um, you know, people are saying it, it doesn't make sense for China to uh, have a budget like the Americans do for the military to catch up because that would be a a kind of like a a big waste of resources. So instead, what China can do is focus on asymmetric uh, warfare, unconventional electronic warfare, cyber warfare, electromagnetic warfare, where they can get like a big bang for their buck, you know, um, find very cheap and efficient ways uh, without having to spend, you know, 800 billion like the Pentagon does annually. They could easily diffuse um, some of the U.S. power. Uh, So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah I think um you know you what you said is exactly right so at the global level overall the United States is still very much in a league of its own it's really the only country that can project large military forces all around the globe and fight major wars for extended periods of time far beyond its borders if you just look at what uh, strategists call power projection capabilities you know these are like things like aircraft carriers and big battleships and long range Uh, 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 aircraft and bomber aircraft, Um, really the United States has many, has has much greater capabilities than China. But that overall comparison, of course, is a bit artificial because like if the United States and China end up in a war, they're not going to fight each other in a vacuum and just kind of throw all of their assets at each other. They're going to fight in East Asia where China would have home field advantage. And that home field advantage allows China to fight asymmetrically because instead of, you know sending out the chinese navy to blast away at america's navy china can launch missiles from its shoreline just from cheap trucks or small ships that are near china's shore and they can launch these very advanced missiles at american aircraft carriers and and big power projection cap- uh, capabilities so china has i think very smartly exploited that natural asymmetry and i actually find in the book that china can now temporarily deny the united states sea and air control within a few hundred miles of the Chinese mainland. They can basically turn those waters near its shore into death zones for U.S. surface ships and uh, non-stealth aircraft. And that's a major change in the local military balance. I mean, in the mid-1990s, in 1996, the United States was able to send two aircraft carriers towards Taiwan to compel China to stop shooting missiles near the island, and China had to back down because it had no answer to the American aircraft carriers. Today, if the United States were to try that, China could not only threaten to sink those carriers, it could actually preemptively strike American bases in Japan, South Korea, maybe even Guam and cripple US forces in the region and then use these so-called anti-access area denial capabilities, basically very advanced missiles to fend off or retreat US forces that try to surge in from outside of the region. Um, You know, the United States could eventually fight its way back in, but the cost would be really high. So China has this potent denial force. On the other hand, what I find is that China still can't control significant territory beyond its borders militarily. Um, One reason is that China still has its military still has weak legs. Um, It has strong arms in the sense that it has these powerful missiles, but it lacks the legs or the power projection platforms it would need to move its forces far beyond its borders and fight far from home. So roughly 85% of China's surface and submarine fleet and its air force are short range platforms that just don't have the gas tanks or uh, the magazine capacity to fight for extended periods of time on the high seas. Um, Another factor is, is regional balancing. So there are 10 countries in East Asia that contest China's territorial claims. And they, many of them have been pushing back on China. So they've been beefing up their militaries. They've been reclaiming land on features in say the South China Sea. Um, and a lot of these countries, you know, even though they are much weaker than China, uh, they actually would have some capability to fend off China in areas near their own shoreline. Um, and the reason is, is sort of the flip side of what I talked about before. So in a war with China, they would have home field advantage against it because they directly border the areas of the sea that they claim. Whereas China in many cases is hundreds or even a thousand miles away. And so Chinese forces would have to commute back and forth to refuel and reload. So only a fraction of them will be fighting at any given time. So in other words, distance helps equalize the military balance. And a lot of China's neighbors have capitalized on that asymmetry by basically copying China's playbook. They're using the same capabilities that China uses to fend off the United States they are using these capabilities to fend off China. And so there's this local balance of military power that acts as a drag on China's military rise and actually acts as a force multiplier for the United States because the United States would have all these regional partners that would be blasting away at China in addition to US forces fighting against China.
0: Speaking of China's neighbors, uh, you know, some people point out uh, as part of the trend of U.S. Uh, decline and Chinese rise, uh, Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte's recent decision to, you know, just as an example, to terminate the Visiting Forces uh, Agreement with the United States—I um, mean, what what do you make of something like that? Is it just something benign, that not, not a big deal, or what do you make of, you know, Duterte's recent uh, outburst?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think it is It is a big deal because, um, you know, for the United States, um, you know, the United States could really use access to air bases in the Philippines um, in order to forward deploy and, and project power into especially the South China Sea. So as this relationship sort of falls apart, um, largely because of the preferences of the of uh, Duterte, that is a major uh, sort of step backwards for the United States in terms of trying to shore up the balance of power in, in East Asia. On the other hand, I'm, I'm not so confident that that decision that Duterte has made is going to last past his term, which is, of course, coming to an end, because recent polls show that more than 80% of Filipinos favor having some capacity to defend Philippine-held features in the Spratlys from Chinese expansion. Um, And a lot of Filipino government and military elites, especially those in the defense ministry, have actually been pressuring Duterte to stand up to China, to confront China's Navy and its Coast Guard. And because the Philippines has almost no offensive naval or air capabilities, they are totally reliant on the United States. So I can see the Philippines eventually coming back to the United States because they know that they need U.S. protection from Chinese expansion. But as long as Duterte is in power, And if this is truly his preference, I think it is a major step back um, because, you know, just like the Philippines needs the United States, the United States also depends somewhat on base access uh, in the Philippines in order to, um, you know, how to mass air power in the South China Sea.
0: I want to go back again to, um, well, the U.S. hyperpower, superpower, empire, whatever you want to call it. Uh, And so you challenge the idea of the historical cycle kind of which states that you know if we, if we think about it we look back in, in history all previous empires uh, have risen and fallen and therefore all current uh, or future empires will follow that same trend uh, and i think you say that the laws of history don't apply today um you know i'm still a firm believer that all, in general all empires rise and fall and fo- will follow that historical cycle um but you know as, as we mentioned before the the, the declines have been going on for decades and decades for for a long time um and but there's something never nevertheless i I find something extremely intriguing and powerful and important to to what you're getting at and you know why are you so confident confident that as regards the u.s empire that the historical cycle doesn't apply
1: well so um historically the two things the two of the main things that have brought down past great powers are first Balancing so where you know when one country becomes very powerful, the natural tendency for weaker countries is to kind of gang up on that powerful country and try to bring it down. Um, You've you've seen Germany, for example, get crushed by other European powers when it was rising, Um, and we've seen this cycle throughout history. You know France under um, you know Louis the Fourteenth you know basically triggers a a counterbalancing coalition against it. What I try to show in the book is that these dynamics haven't really applied to the United States. In fact, the United States has been gaining allies ever since it became the world's sole superpower. So more countries are bandwagoning with the United States rather than balancing against it. And I largely attribute this to one geography. So the United States is the only major power in the Western Hemisphere. All the other major powers are packed together in Eurasia. And so as a result they tend to worry about each other more than they worry about the United States. And in fact, they try to enlist American help to balance against their own regional rivals. So whether that's the Western Europeans you know, trying to keep the United States um, in NATO or Japan enlisting American help in you know, um, trying to keep stability in East Asia. So as largely as a result of uh, geography and then just the fact that the United States has lots of capabilities that are very useful to other countries, it's basically the perfect ally And as a result, you don't see these vicious counterbalancing coalitions that brought down past great powers uh, taking on the United States today. The second force that has brought down a lot of great powers is what is called convergence. So the natural tendency for poor countries to grow faster than rich countries and eventually overtake them. Um, What I find is that even though China has been growing faster, it's still lagging far behind the United States and looking forward I find that the United States actually has the best prospects to continue to grow its economy of any of the current major powers Um, because economists have shown that long-run growth depends on three broad factors, geography, political institutions, and demography. And by uh, by all three of those measures, the United States actually is much better off than all of the other great powers. So geographically, the United States is a natural economic hub and military fortress. It's packed with resources. It has more um, navigable waterways and ports, which are kind of like economic arteries that stitch together a national market. It has more of those than the rest of the world combined. Its only neighbors are Canada and Mexico. Um, China, on the other hand, you know has, has plowed through a lot of its natural resources and it's surrounded by 19 countries, many of which are either hostile or unstable. So it creates this enormous drag on Chinese power. Um, demographically, the United States is the only country that is, has a big population, but also one that is young, highly educated and productive. So it's the third largest workforce, the second youngest, the most educated in terms of years of schooling, the hardest working population in terms of hours worked and lateness of retirement. And most importantly, it's the only population, uh, workforce, young workforce that's going to grow over the course of the 21st century. China, on the other hand, is going to lose more than 200 million workers just over the next 30 years. And at the same time, it's going to add 300 million senior citizens over the course of that time. I mean, this is literally the worst demographic inversion um, in history. So, and then institutionally, you know, the United States is a mess. Um, You know, the U.S. political system is, you know, at best, I would say a flawed democracy. But when you look at the political systems of the other great powers, especially China and Russia, I mean, China is essentially an oligarchy ruled by a dictator for life. And so while, yes, it's true that you know, special interests drag down American growth, they fuel corruption and inequality. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party systematically sacrifices economic efficiency to maintain political control, um, most notably by um, funneling subsidies to state-owned enterprises that aren't very productive while starving private firms of, of capital. There's all these, it's basically a giant patronage system so when you look at the kind of broad things that drive long-term economic growth the united states is much better situated right now it's not guaranteed to outpace other countries but it's not suffering the kind of debilitations that brought down past great powers
0: yeah i think that's one of the strong points um, of your argument and why we do have to look at this a bit differently when you mention geography institutions and demography i mean if we look at the history of the world I mean, pretty much every empire or the empires uh, that, that rivaled each other were centered in Eurasia. And this is kind of like the first time in history where um, we've got an empire situated across the waters, uh, well defended by you know, the Pacific Atlantic Oceans in North America. And I think that's kind of a game uh, changer. And just to look at maybe some surprise weak points in, in the future where we might get some surprises that, that challenge uh, U.S., Power, because uh, you know we we have the dollar world reserve and the petrodollar dollar. But what would happen if something happens to the dollar world reserve, the petrodollar dollar? Um, you know, because they're the keys keys to the American net stock of wealth. And you know, if China pulls a rabbit out of the hat, they they have this. There's this talk about this digital gold back petro yuan or you know some other game changing technology or, or strategy. If, if if something happens, I mean, is there on the horizon anything like that? You think that could challenge? Uh, the U S and you know, everything would change.
1: Yeah, I, I, um, there certainly are things. I don't think the, the dollar is what I worry about most because I mean, what we've seen over the, since the financial crisis, ironically, even though the U S caused the global financial crisis, the dollar has only become stronger. People have turned to the dollar because they feel it's the major safe haven for them to park their money in. Um, And it seems, especially now that the Euro seems to be in a downward spiral and the Chinese don't want to um, loosen capital controls in the way they would need to, to really make B-1 a global currency. There just aren't really strong competitors to um, the dollar. So I don't worry that much about that. What I do worry about are a couple of things. One is um, you know, these new technologies, you never know how they're going to play out. And some people argue that things like artificial intelligence are going to be total game changers in terms of how we make things, how we develop military power, ultimately how countries amass wealth and power in the future. And so you could, if you if you believe that that is true, and then you also think that China is out investing the United States in things like AI, um, that could be a big game changer. If the United States, you know, you, we've seen this with past great powers where they've kind of rested on their laurels and only invested in the industries they're already good at and not investing in the next industrial revolution. So Britain, Um, didn't really capitalize on the second industrial revolution, whereas Germany did and things like chemicals. Um, So you could, you could see something similar where if some of these technologies end up being game changing and the United States doesn't adequately invest in them, it could fall behind um, to a country like China. Uh, The second is the, I, and this is what I worry about the most probably is just sort of crumbling from within. So not so much that the United States gets outpaced by a rising challenger, but that, Americans essentially turn on each other, the level of polarization and um, domestic discord rises to such a level that um, essentially the, the nation crumbles from within. I mean, we've seen this happen, especially for very dominant countries, where I think because they don't face a pressing enemy abroad that kind of unites the population, people turn on each other. And in extreme cases, you see it devolve into civil war. Um, if you look at the history of Rome, you know, a lot of it is kind of weakening from within. And so I worry that what we're seeing today with the, and you see this after the end of the Cold War, basically, where the Soviet Union goes away. And that's when suddenly polarization returns to the American political system. Um, and it's taking on this sort of ethnic component where people are, and cultural component where people are dividing themselves by ethnicity and culture. So I just worry about sort of internal unrest in the United States, Um And even if it doesn't spill over to the level of violence, the fact that the system is so polarized um, and so gridlocked basically allows room then for special interests to go in and infect American institutions and drag down um, long-term economic growth. So even if it doesn't spill over to actual unrest and violence, it still undermines the efficiency of the system, essentially. So you could see the United States crumbling from within.
0: Something you mentioned in your book, uh, which I like, is this idea of American exceptionalism. You know, myself as an American, uh, when I kind of w- woke up to this idea that I'm I'm not just a U.S. citizen, I'm I'm I'm, an, um, I'm a citizen of the American Empire. You know, we we often realize we don't realize that we're we're actually <laughs> in an empire. You know, um, and you make clear that you believe all people around the world are equal. And that America isn't uh, exceptional, but only the most powerful because, you know, because of circumstances. And, you know, it should, because of this, try to improve the lives of its own citizens. Could you briefly just speak to this idea of American exceptionalism?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, I I wanted to make clear in the book and and here that the argument of the book is not to argue that the U.S., that Americans are somehow better than other nations. Um, You know, I, I basically think people are pretty much the same all over the world, at least fundamentally. The argument of the book is more that the United States as a country has been blessed by exceptional circumstances that have enabled it to amass much more power than any other country um, in history. And so, as a result, the United States occupies an exceptional position, but it's not because Americans themselves are exceptional. It has a lot more to do with geography, uh, with resources, with the institutions that the United States started with. Um, and and the fact that the other major powers um, have a lot of their own their own internal difficulties. So you know, I I, I also you know as an American, I um, the longer I've and the more I've traveled, I realized how much I used to take for granted that I can travel and do business in many parts of the world, you know, using English and dollars, and that my passport gets me into a lot of different countries, and that you know people I know that are involved in international trade and investment, they are dealing with other countries many of whom have basically imported parts of their legal system from the United States, or at least copied parts of it from U.S. law. Um, I, I benefit from the fact that the U.S. government has a lot of strings it can pull to protect me as a citizen when I go abroad. So there's all these privileges that go along with living in such a powerful country that I think it's very easy for us to take for granted.
0: I guess one of the I guess my main or big criticism of your of your book or the, the only criticism that I could think of is um, and and this is often the case this this picture of American empires as uh, benevolent and as I said that was more of a declinist I'm I'm I have getting a, a Different picture now, but this idea of the U.S. and, and liberal democracy um, and this uh, very positive image of the U- United States. And sure, if we compare it to most other countries, uh, I would I would rather be, as you say, having a U.S. passport and living in America as, as opposed to other um, places such as China because of the, the system there. Um, but, you know, the U.S. has carried out countless regime changes and they've supported the dictators. And there's this kind of element of kind of double speaker hi- hypocrisy where, you know, we say we're, we're spreading democracy. Yet, you know, in one country here, we're supporting a, a dictator because it's uh, good for our interests uh, at the time. And so, you know, how would you square this circle or respond to, to the, the darker side of Pax Americana?
1: yeah i i also i agree with that i mean i think there's no denying that the united states has done a lot of terrible things um around the world um it's committed a lot of mistakes you know the iraq war the vietnam war um ended up getting a lot of a lot of people killed it's overthrown left-leaning democracies it's propped up right-wing authoritarians um there's any number of examples you can point to of the united states Basically, being a self interested, what I would think of as a normal great power that is basically out for its own interests and is willing to slit the throats of any other country that gets in its way. That said, I do think that the United States has done some things that have made the world a dramatically better place, not necessarily for the right reasons, but the effect of some of the things the United States has done has been enormously beneficial for big parts of the world. So I think, and and this actually draws on some other research I've done, but American security guarantees. So the United States has extended security guarantees to more than 60 countries. And if you look at what has happened to those countries since they received an American security guarantee, it has totally suppressed military conflict among the vast majority of these states. Um, if you just look at their rates of participation in war, their the number of people and their populations killed in warfare, it basically just falls off a cliff, and they become these sort of zones of peace. That then has enabled many of them to develop their economy. So you've seen rates of economic growth go up dramatically in in American allies, essentially after they receive these security guarantees. And actually, in a lot of cases, they ended up democratizing as well. And so the results, from a global perspective, have actually been dramatic. So before 1950, you know, before the United States started extending all of these alliances, there had never been more than 25 democracies in the world ever. Today, there's more than 100, and a lot of them are concentrated in these sort of zones of peace that the United States has helped provide um, a security foundation for. Um, before 1950, you know, global GDP had never risen by more than one percent a year, but since then, it's been rising by an average of roughly four percent a year. And again, that growth has been concentrated in areas um predominated by american allies and then the most important thing is you know the international rates of warfare have declined by an order of magnitude and they basically ceased almost entirely among formal american allies so you know the united states extended these security guarantees to win the cold war it didn't do it out of benevolence so i'm not arguing the united states is a benevolent power but the effect of guaranteeing the security of these countries protecting their shipping so that they don't have to build militaries and engage in gunboat diplomacy has, I think, made the world a dramatically more peaceful, prosperous and more democratic place than it otherwise would have been. My worry now, though, is that, you know, I mean, you see trends in American foreign policy where the U.S. seems to be going back to what, are, what was really its root foreign policy, which is an America first, um, you know, uh, a nationalist foreign policy rather than an internationalist foreign policy. So, I do worry that the United States will start to walk back some of those um, those security guarantees and the world will be worse off for it, but at least as of now you know the alliances still exist, and I think they're still having the intended effect
0: yeah I think there's something to to that and and those values in a few months um, I'll be having a, a guest on who has produced some really interesting research where he says that um, and it's backed by you know hardcore scientific data where he says many countries that have had a higher presence of uh, protestant christian missionaries and, and activities such as this have a much higher level of economic development and democracy so as you mentioned that the security aspect i think i think there's something there to the to this kind of uh, these values or, or system one of the my, one of my final questions uh, that i asked most guests try to get you know pick their brains with, the, with their insights uh about the prospects of you know uh, world war because this is uh, talked about uh, these days often, and so you say, you know, the only challengers to American empire today and the future are the Eurasian dragon bear, if we say, you know, Russia, China, uh, and the EU, and that all kind of sounds, sounds like the picture that George Orwell painted in 1984, you know, east say <laughs> <Louisiana>, these <East Asia, laughs> three essential global powers, um, but you don't think the EU or, uh, let's say, the dragon bear, Russia, China, will emerge, perhaps as great powers, and you've mentioned Graham Allison's Thucydides trap, um, you know, you believe American unipo- unipolarity will remain strong and that great conflict uh, therefore will remain unlikely and that if something does occur, it'll occur in a contested zone. So, I mean, you think we'll be, is there the real potential you think in the near, anytime soon for you know, a third world war or things will just kind of continue in the in the proxy war sense?
1: Yeah, I, I, even though I think the United States is going to remain head and shoulders above other countries, it doesn't mean that there's no potential for military conflict among them. It doesn't mean that the United States couldn't lose a war um, or, or accidentally trigger a war. What I worry about, though, is it's not this sort of Thucydides dynamic where you have a rising power that basically takes on a ruling power for global supremacy, and it's this big, gigantic throwdown and a world war. I think the more likely scenario is some sort of regional conflict over limited stakes that then accidentally spirals out of control into a nuclear um, exchange. So one, one obvious example could be over Taiwan. So obviously, even though the United States is more powerful than China, China's right next to Taiwan. It has a lot of military advantages in a Taiwan contingency because it's so much closer. And what I worry about is that you could have some kind of miscalculation that causes both sides to escalate and it spirals out of control. And I mean, they're both nuclear powers and you could have some nuclear exchange. Um, in, in Eastern Europe, I worry about a similar situation in the Baltics, where again, even though Russia is much weaker than the United States and certainly much weaker than NATO, geography, the fact that you know Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania are right on Russia's border, um, they're tiny countries. I think collectively they have about as much territory as the state of Missouri. Um, They have tiny militaries. You know, Russia could do a lot of things to those countries, with maybe the false expectation that NATO wouldn't intervene or wouldn't escalate, and that NATO may hit Russia, expecting Russia to back down. And you could see some kind of escalation going in again. Nuclear weapons could come into play. So I worry more about a limited war that escalates to um, to to a nuclear exchange.
0: And what about the? If we look at the flip side, if there's no challenger. to the U.S., but I mean, w- what if something happens within the U.S. where we get uh, a leader or, or a political, po- uh, political party or, or a group of uh, interests that take uh, power in the U.S., as, as we've seen in history, where the republics or, or the empires uh, become dictatorships. Do you have any fear where this global U.S. power could switch, move away from a liberal democracy, and we have this, all of a sudden, this, you know, growing global, unipolar system that turns towards uh, authoritarianism
1: i i don't think that's likely but i do worry about it because it's not it's not impossible um and just the fact that there's a non-trivial possibility that the united states can kind of edge closer and closer or move away from democratic rule to something more authoritarian really really terrifies me even though i, I if, if i had to bet I would say that the um, restraints and the democratic constraints, the separation of powers is still strong enough that the independent media is still a force, that the majority of Americans still do place a lot of um, importance on democratic institutions and liberal values. But it's not out of the question that you could have you know, if you look at if you look at the history of presidential democracies, the United States is really the only one that still is around that still functions. I mean, the vast majority of them have been in Latin America, and they basically have oscillated between chaos and civil war, or authoritarianism. Um, because unlike a parliamentary system, there's no way you know there's no way to break deadlocks by just calling snap elections, and so it becomes very hard to get anything done. And oftentimes it cascades to one side or the other. So just the history of presidential democracies. How fragile they are and how often they fail really scares me. And then, obviously, developments in the United States, um, especially since 2016, um, have alarmed me. I mean, I think the conduct of the current administration is terrifying um, with the way that they have been acting a lot like, you know, sort of a third world uh, dictatorship in terms of, you know, pardoning uh, allies and persecuting enemies and um, spreading untruths. So, you know, uh, if the election doesn't rectify that, or even if the election does, but then you know, the, Trump doesn't leave after he loses an election or tries to claim that it was contested and that uh, we have to review the results, you, know, you could see a lot of cases for political instability that then can give rise to much darker, more authoritarian elements. I don't think any of that is likely. Um, I fundamentally trust in American institutions, but I do worry about it because it's not
0: impossible. All right. Is there anything else you feel important to mention or, or any final thoughts uh, to leave us with?
1: Uh, no, I think this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure um, being able to discuss these issues with you.
0: And is there any new book uh, your topic you're working on or how can people best follow you?
1: I'm, I'm working uh, on a couple of projects. The main one is on what happens when fast growing great powers slow down. So I'm obviously thinking of China uh, or India today, which, you know, for the past 10 years, they've been growing. For the past 20 years, they've been growing like gangbusters. But over the past decade or so, their their economies have been slowing, and a lot of people think they're going to slow a lot more in the future. So the project I'm working on now is basically looks historically, what happens where you've had a fast-growing great power that suddenly has hit um, an economic rough patch? What does that do to their security policy? How does it change? their policies at home in terms of domestic security. Um, And I don't wanna give away the ending, but basically so far it's a pretty dark picture. Um, The vast majority of the cases I've looked at so far became more repressive at home and more expansionist abroad. I actually think China has been basically fitting that ugly pattern over the past decade as its economy has slowed, it's become more oppressive at home certainly, and it's become expanding abroad economically and militarily. So I worry that that may be a preview of the future. But anyway, I'm working on this project that looks at that um, historically.
0: Yeah, that's fa- fascinating. And I think it's a good, uh, you know, after Unrivaled, it's a good place to, to go to research. Uh, so I urge listeners to get the book uh, Unrivaled, which will indeed challenge your thinking. And I know it has challenged uh, mine. And, and I think that's the whole... Purpose of thing, you know, we're we're allowed to look at evidence and new new evidence and recalibrate our our thinking. I think that's a good thing, and not to be stuck, you know, permanently in one uh, at, with one point of view. So, thank you again, Dr. Michael Beckley.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels, such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.